If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open to Mark chapter 11. All right, as we come to God's Word, normally I don't have an introduction before we read the text, but this morning I want to spend just a few minutes talking about uh, Mark chapter 11 through the end of the book. We enter into a new section of Mark this morning, and it's really significant. Beginning with our text today, Jesus is entering his final week of life, the final seven days. So Mark 1 through the end of chapter 10, we are covering almost 30 years of Jesus' birth towards his ministry. The last third of Mark, and by looking at this you can understand the importance of these last chapters to understanding the the life, the teaching, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But the last chapters of Mark, Mark 11 to 16, are all about these last seven days of Jesus' life. And without exaggeration this morning, I believe that we can say, in all truth, that this is the most important week in the history of the world. It's certainly the most important week in Jesus' life. It is certainly the most important uh, week. All of the Old Testament was building and looking to this moment where the prophecies of the Messiah would come to fruition. And in fact, as we sit here today in our modern world, all of modern history looks back to this one week and specifically this one moment. This is the defining moment of our world, telling us who God is and what his purpose is, helping us understand his love, explaining to the world what our problem is, which is sin, and giving us the solution. This is the single most important week, not only of the biblical record, but for your life. You weren't alive then, but the single most defining week for your life as you sit here today is what we are about to unfold in Mark chapter 11 through 16. So this morning, as we prepare to read Mark 11, it's just about to be Passover. We've studied the Passover. Jesus has been on a trip. He is now coming into view of Jerusalem and the events that Jesus has been predicting to his disciples, but God has planned from all of eternity, are about to unfold. So read with me, Mark, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they meaning Jesus and his disciples, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, 
what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. I've entitled our sermon this morning, The Return of the King. But not the return of the king like we think of in Lord of the Rings, right? Where uh, when we think of the return of the king, there is this, uh, this climax of the story of all the things coming true. Of salvation about to happen. Of the great victory about to be won. Of the final battle being fought. And yet, as I've just read to you, Mark's account ends with Jesus going to the temple, looking around, and heading back to Bethany. So the rest of the title is the return of the king, the reception and rejection of the prophesied Messiah. Now, in your Bibles, you might have a title, and that title is most often... Actually, I'll just ask you, what is your title in this section? Anybody have a title for this? As king, all right. Or the triumphal entry. How many had that? Maybe more than half. I like Carrie. Carrie, what version do you have there? NIV. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Uh, I have always learned this as the triumphal entry. And the reality is, is that it's really not the triumphal entry that most would have expected. In fact, that name is not so accurate. Jesus certainly does return to Jerusalem, but it's not triumphantly as king. So the big question I kind of want in front of us as we study the text this morning is, why no coronation? Why no coronation? Why no crown? Why did the day end at the temple with no crowds and no priest anointing Jesus as king, no prophet to receive him, and to recognize their long-awaited king? I want that thought to be in forefront in our minds, and when we get to the end of our study today, we'll unpack that more. But for the time being... We're going to be studying the return of the king, the reception and rejection of the prophesied Messiah. The big question I want in our minds is, why no coronation? Why no crown? As we look at the text this morning, we're going to actually be unpacking a lot from the Old Testament. So we're going to spend some time really digging deeper into what was actually taking place. And so our outline is quite simple. Verse 1, we have Jerusalem in view. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to be taking a look at the meaning of this cult. Verses 7 to 8, cloaks and branches. What do they mean? What do they signify? 
Verses 9 and 10, we sang the song today. Carrie picked out Hosanna, knowing we were covering this passage. By the way, this is normally an Easter passage, right? We, we preach on the triumphal entry at Easter. It happens to be in front of us in the text today. But we want to talk about this idea of Hosanna. What did it fully mean? And lastly, we're going to end at the temple. Along with Jesus, standing there with no crowds, no coronation, and simply walking back up the two-kilometer hike up a hill to Bethany where he's going to stay that night. So let's begin this morning. Let's begin with Jerusalem is in view. Verse 1, it just simply says they were drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethphage and to Bethany. Now we don't know where this Bethphage is. You may have heard it called Bethpage. We don't know specifically uh, how this is pronounced. But, and we, and we don't know exactly where it is. Here's where we know. Last week, we were in Jericho. It's the last thing that uh, Mark tells us. And we know that Jesus is constantly moving forward and approaching Jerusalem. This map shows you, and you may uh, see here. So when Mark began, we begin to see G- most of Jesus' ministry take place around Galilee. Galilee, Galilee is around the north. You could see the Sea of Galilee, and this is where Jesus spends the majority of his time. But since uh, 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 we, we began to have a turn in the text, when we got to the middle of Mark and the confession of, of Peter, of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, in chapter 8, we begin to see Jesus very specifically move his ministry, and he starts making a way towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is visiting multiple towns, multiple cities, and Mark doesn't fill in all the details, but we are left to assume that the same thing that happened in Galilee in the surrounding towns was happening in each of the places that Jesus visited. He preaches, he teaches, he heals. So last week when we saw the the events in Jericho, we just saw one glimpse of one person. It was a healing of a man named Blind Bartimaeus. Well, Jesus continues on his mission to get to Jerusalem for Passover. And this morning as we come to the text, Jerusalem is in view. We definitely know where Bethany was, and if you have uh, seen pictures of the Holy Land, Bethany sits above Jerusalem. And as you would uh, come to Bethany, and as you would look down, down uh, below Bethany, Jerusalem unfolded, and you would have a a view of the entire city and the temple, uh, and you would be able to see the holy city, David's city. And this is where our account takes us. You know, if this was a movie, the cinematography that you would see, you would see from Bethany the view towards Jerusalem. And you would know that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem ever since he left Galilee, and now everything is coming into focus. Jesus comes into the town of Bethany. Jerusalem is in view. And there's three things that I want you to see. Jerusalem is the royal city. When Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the ancient city where the kings of Israel, specifically David and Solomon, would have ruled from. This is the center of the royal throne. When we talk about Israel, when we talk about Jerusalem, the epicenter of what it was for the royal kingdom. Now, uh, when we come to Jesus' time, 
Jerusalem is no longer a kingdom like it once was. It is now ruled by the Romans. They don't effectively have a king. But historically, when the Jews thought of the center of the kingdom of Israel, it's Jerusalem. And so when Jesus looks at Jerusalem, this is the center. This is where the throne is. This is where God continually begins to prophesy that he will send a Messiah who will rule from Zion. We often hear of the word Zion. What does that mean? It simply means Jerusalem. The second thing I want you to see is that the temple is in Jerusalem. So the place where God is worshipped among his people, the center of the worship of the one true God is in the temple in Jerusalem. And thirdly, do you know who the rightful king is? The one whose very blood running through his veins comes from David. And there's a prophesied covenant with David that he will have a ruler to reign on his throne for all of eternity. That ruler would be the Messiah. Do you see that as we come to Mark 11, the city is in view. The right city, the right place where the worship of God takes place, and the rightful king have all been brought exactly into focus. One piece of context, let me just give you, that Mark doesn't give us, so that you know kind of what's taking place as Jesus gets ready to approach Jerusalem. If you know about the healing of Lazarus, of Jesus calling back to life a man who was dead, you know where that took place? Bethany. Bethany, where Jesus is currently staying. We don't know how long Jesus stayed there, but we know the miracle that is not included in Mark and it is the fact that, you know, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, their hometown is Bethany. And on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is now going to go to Jerusalem. And if you think about the fact that Jesus just performed this miracle, you can imagine that many others who are also making their way to Jerusalem, because, by the way, it's Passover. It's one of the few times where everybody from all of Israel makes their way. It's a pilgrimage. Everybody goes to Jerusalem. And Jesus is one more of those pilgrims. And you've got to believe that as Jesus is making his way down, there are people coming from Bethany, and they're saying, do you know what this man did? Lazarus was dead, and now he lives. And you've got to believe Lazarus is among those making the pilgrimage. And it becomes a deadly cocktail as we get there of these people who have seen with their own eyes Jesus. It's the right king. It's the right place. It's the royal throne, and there's a man who's just been raised from the dead. This is the setting. These are the things that are important for you to understand as we begin to approach the text this morning. Let's talk about the cult in verses 1 through 6. I think in modern times, if I were to say the word cult, most of us would assume it's a horse. We don't use the word cult very often. So the first thing I need you to understand, that the biblical word that they're using here, cult, means the young of any animal. And I I I would assume the young of any Kind of, uh, I don't think this, I don't know the right word, equine animal, uh, horse or donkey or something similar. Uh, a colt is the young of an animal. And specifically, now Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew 21 2 does tell us 
that it's not just a cult of any animal, it's specifically the cult of a donkey. Matthew 21, 2 says, saying to them, go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So Matthew gives us a little more understanding of the text. It's not just a singular colt. It is a young colt standing beside its mother. And the mother is a donkey. And so we know this animal that Jesus is going to, uh, to sit on and ride is a donkey. And not just any donkey, it's a donkey that on which no one has ever sat. Why is that important? Well, you know as well as I do that when we talk about the temple, things that are specifically set aside for God, what was important about them, why they were called holy, was that because they were not set aside for any other use. And so when something is specifically dedicated to the Lord, the, the, the difference between something that uh, is uh, unholy versus something that is holy, when we talk about the, the, the biblical record, was its usage. Something that was set aside as holy for God was used in the temple. The things that we might sometimes call profane, what is unholy, was simply what was set aside for normal usage. And so there's a picture being painted here of this young donkey that has never been ridden as one that has been set aside for a specific holy purpose. And not only with Jesus, and not only talking about just holiness, but one thing that should never happen, if, if you have a king and he has a horse, do you know who else rides that horse? No one. That's a king's horse. You'll be killed for riding the king's horse. That there is, there is an understanding that what is the king's, what is his, is his. That nobody else better uh, assume the authority or the right to use the king's horse. And so we have this idea that this cult is a special cult. Now, take this idea of the cult, it's very specifically a donkey, on which no one has ever sat, and let's read Zechariah 9.9. Because as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he begins to do something he has never done which is openly reveal that he is the Messiah. You notice, uh, we, we have talked about this in the past, but oftentimes when Jesus would heal, or when he revealed his Messiah, that he was the Messiah to his disciples, he told them the time is not yet. And it's often con- uh, uh, oftentimes called, uh, when you read commentaries or theology, the messianic secret. It's, it's this pattern that Jesus has in all of the Gospels where when it is not yet his time, Jesus does not want his disciples or others openly talking and pushing about this fact that he is the Messiah. Let's read Zechariah 9.9 because you notice all of a sudden Jesus is in the right place at the right time, the rightful heir, and he begins to openly talk about the fact that he is the Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. What is Zion? Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah, God had been using his prophets to 
be able to, or to, to plant the seeds in his people, to be expecting this Messiah. And how would he come? He would come into Jerusalem. He would come in on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see how clearly Jesus is proclaiming that he is the Messiah by telling his two disciples, go into Bethphage, find the colt, untie it, and bring it to me. Don't miss this. By riding a donkey into Jerusalem, a donkey that had never been ridden, Jesus is openly acknowledging and inviting. He's daring the people to see and embrace that he is the prophesied Messiah. Don't miss this. Jesus is inviting God's people to see that he is the prophesied Messiah. Now, how would his disciples respond? Let's look at the cloaks and the branches, verse 7 and 8. Well, the disciples respond. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on the cloaks. The the cloaks kind of form a a saddle, in a sense. But there's also an, an act of honor. There's an act of humility. So how did Jesus' disciples respond? They get it. They bring the colt to Jesus, and immediately they take off their outer garments, and they put their cloaks on the donkey so that Jesus has a saddle to ride into the city. Now, not only did Jesus' disciples get it, but notice it says in verse 8, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches. The crowds begin to get it too. Now, we don't know specifically, but our senses, and, and from all the reading that I've done, is that... The pilgrims coming from Galilee, and specifically the pilgrims coming from Bethany, would have been in a place to see and recognize Jesus. Now, you've got to keep in mind, many people have never seen Jesus. It is not modern times. They may have heard about this miracle worker, but by sight, nobody knows him. And so as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it's very likely that as he comes down from Bethany, there might be a group of pilgrims coming with him, who begin to put together the pieces. His disciples are recognizing. Could this be the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9? Now, they didn't have 9.9, right? They didn't have references, but I'm sure in their minds, they would have understood, is the prophecy being fulfilled? Because it was really clear and really specific. And those coming from Bethany, who had just seen Lazarus raised, are coming with anticipation, Because this isn't any regular prophet. And those who are coming from Galilee, who are making their way, maybe some of those are coming in, and all of a sudden, as Jesus is making his way on a donkey, a little crowd begins to form around Jesus. It's unexpected, it's unanticipated, it's not planned at all. But people begin to respond. And their response is to lay down their cloaks on the road. it's, it's, It's like an impromptu red carpet with cloaks. Because they're recognizing this is the Messiah. And if this is the Messiah, that means he is the king. And how do you respond to a king when you have nothing to give? You lay down your cloak, you run it, and you cut a leafy branch, and you welcome him with whatever you have in hand. Now, the image that we're seeing played out here 
Very specifically, once again, is from the Old Testament. I've already pointed you to Zechariah 9.9, but I want to point you to 2 Kings 9.12-13. Because we have another instance in Israel's history. When someone is made king, this king is Jehu, I want you to see the response of the crowd. Now, this was uh, the, the, uh, the crowning of Jehu. It comes as a result of, of, of God announcing that he is the king. There is no preparation, like when you think of the fact I was reading this morning about the, the fact that uh, King Charles will be crowned king, but there's a lot of planning that's going on. It doesn't actually happen to May 6th. There's significant planning to get the city ready, to get everything ready, for the, the, for the, to have the proper honor and respect, and to have everything that is needed for a proper coronation takes time. But what happens when you have no time? Well, look at what happened in 2 Kings 9, 12 to 13. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. What was their response? They took off their cloaks. They put it on the steps where he was getting ready to descend, just as a way of recognizing and of honoring the king. What do you see here? When Jesus comes into the city, when fellow pilgrims traveling all of a sudden begin to put together the pieces, that here is Jesus. Some of them knew him by sight, but but we would say the majority would not have. But those who knew him recognized him, take off their cloaks, and they begin to put them down. Those who maybe uh, didn't have an opportunity to put down a cloak, they're running, they're getting a branch, they're just waving the branch as a way to receive and accept a king. It was the only offering that they could make. And one of the things that you see that Jesus did not do at any point in time in his ministry was he accepted them honoring him as king. Every time before this, whether it was with the disciples or those who healed, when Jesus came into contact, he specifically told them, the time is not yet. What do you see Jesus doing in this? He openly receives the fact that they're recognizing him as Messiah and King. Let's talk about Hosanna. In verses 9 and 10, we see that the people begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a word, we we have songs that we sing about Hosanna. This is a word that most of you automatically know the uh, translation of, which is Hosanna means save us or save now. It's become, uh, so the word Hosanna is literally just like a, a transliteration here. And its original meaning of this cry was a plea for help, of save us. But in Israel's history, it begins to take on a different term. It's almost like a shout of praise. And it becomes actually a greeting for pilgrims as they're coming for Passover. Hosanna. Save now. Uh, we, we have these kind of greetings, right? So when you say to somebody, Happy New Year, it's a little bit different than a, a greeting that we would have of, Hey, how are you doing? How are you? But we recognize at certain times of the season that we change to a different greeting. Where 
during the Christmas season or during the New Year's, oftentimes I don't greet somebody with, hey, how are you doing today? I might just simply say, Happy New Year. And it, it becomes the new way we greet each other for a certain season. Hosanna becomes the way that the pilgrims greeted each other when they were on uh, the road toward Jerusalem and I was there looking forward to celebrating Passover. So Hosanna is at once a cry for save us. It's also a greeting. But one thing actually I never knew until my study this week, I didn't realize a connection between Hosanna when we look at Psalm 2 and Psalm 118. So I want to take you to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is actually a song. It's a praise song that they sang, that pilgrims sang when they were coming for Passover. And if we look at Psalm 118, verses 25 to 29, it says this, Save us, we pray. That's their Hosanna. Save us, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did we not just read that in the text? So what we see, that what they're saying to Jesus, they're literally singing this pilgrim song of Hosanna. The one they've learned. This is how we celebrate Passover. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's Psalm 118. That's where you get Hosanna from. Hosanna is their song. It is literally the song in their mouths. It's Psalm 118. It's what they've been taught since they were a little child. When they celebrate Passover, this is what we sing. But here's the beauty of it. Do you know why Psalm 118 was written? It was written because of Psalm 2. It was the expectation and the anticipation that one day... Hosanna, the one would come to save. And why would they think that? Psalm 2, which we actually just read two weeks ago. Let me just point you to a few things. If you have your copy of God's Word, open to Psalm 2 or open it on your phone or iPad. But let me just point out Psalm 2, verse 2. It says, against the Lord and His anointed. Psalm 2 begins to, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and his anointed. Very specifically, we see in Psalm 2 that God has anointed a king himself. Not a king made with human hands. But God has anointed a king. And God says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king where? On Zion, my holy hill. And then he says in verses 10 to 12, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Jews knew that God had an anointed one, one that he would make king. He was promised that he would come, and the kings of the world, even though they would not Uh, they would choose not to recognize him, would serve him. And God tells us in his word that blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is what led to the song in Psalm 118. 
They sang Psalm 118 in the expectation, one day the anointed one is coming. God himself has told us. And so when they came each year for Passover, what did they sing? They sang in anticipation for that king. And what did they sing? Hosanna, save us now. Could this be the year? Could this be the time that God saves us? He's promised in Psalm 2. And so our lives are built around the routine of celebrating that promise. And now as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, guess what they're singing? Save now in anticipation of the fact that one day God would be faithful to send a Savior. And we see again here that Jesus accepted their praise. As they began to sing this song and Jesus' uh, little parade that is making its way into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, some laying down their cloaks, some waving the palm fronds, and now they're singing. And what did Jesus do? Jesus accepted their praise. Why? Because Psalm 2 was being fulfilled. Let's close by looking at the temple. When I was in seminary, one of the ways that they taught me to, be, uh, to, to study a text so that we discern the author's meaning is to look for the action or drama. What is, what is taking place? What, where, is, where is the heart of the action in the story? I can't think of a verse that is least likely to hold drama than verse 11, but this is really the focus and the, the culmination of this parade. That Mark doesn't tell us exactly what happened to the cloaks being laid out and those running alongside of Jesus and singing his praise, but here's where verse 11 ends us, and it is about the most unexpected ending that you could possibly think of when we read this text, based upon what I have just shared from you from the Old Testament, of Zechariah 9, of 2 Kings, of Psalm 2, of Psalm 118. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is not where the action is, but this is absolutely foundational for us understanding what is taking place in the last seven days of Jesus' life. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. Some do receive him. But at the end of the day, there's no crowds, no fanfare. No recognition from the priests. The priests would, would normally recognize the king. A prophet might anoint the king with oil. But there is no priest. There is no prophet. There are no leaders of Israel. There's a handful of people that apparently accompanied Jesus who recognized that the prophecies of Zechariah were being fulfilled, who laid down their cloaks honoring their king, who cut down what we think might be some palm fronds or maybe just some branches to welcome him. And then the crowds dissipated. And at the end of the day, Jesus is left. He makes his way to the temple. And he stands there and he takes it all in. 
Some of the best movies in cinematography, uh, when you think about movies, are where nothing is being said, but the, the uh, producer of the movie is trying to communicate through a picture, a lasting image in your head, that you begin to unpack. You're thinking, what does that mean? And Mark does something here, long before there was cinematography. Mark puts a lasting image in our head of Jesus' triumphal entry, ending with no fanfare in the quietness of the night, looking at the temple. I told you I wanted to begin this morning by asking this question, and I want this to dominate how we understand the passage. Why no coronation? Why no crown? Why did the day end at the temple and not at a palace? I want to point you to just two verses to unpack this, and we'll be unpacking this for the next several months as we look at Mark 11 through 16. But the answers are not profound in terms of that you haven't seen these before. We've actually read them. So let me point you to two scriptures from Mark that explain what is taking place here. Mark 10.32, just a chapter before. This is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and I want to read it again. Jesus and his disciples are on the road from Galilee. They're making their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And the twelve, uh, he was, he's taking the twelve again, kind of by themselves. And he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mark 10.45 further tells us, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason there was no coronation and the reason that Jesus was not recognized by Jerusalem and by the city and received is that Jesus was not coming to be crowned king by human hands. Did you recognize in Psalm 2, who is God's anointed? Jesus. We don't make Jesus king. God has made Jesus king king. Jesus was not coming into Jerusalem to be recognized and to be crowned king. He'd already been anointed. He already sits as ruler over the nations. Jesus was coming as king to die for the sins of the world. And when we understand this, that it makes perfect sense that Jesus ends his day by looking at the temple. Because the temple was the singular place that God had set up a system to deal with the sins of the world. And in fact, that entire Passover, there are going to be tens of thousands of pilgrims all coming to Jerusalem to do what? To offer a sacrifice for their sins. Because one thing they knew is that their sins had separated them from a holy God. 
And by coming each year, their sin was constantly in front of them. But they were also reminded there's a gracious God who has provided a way to make uh, a sacrifice for sins. Why does the account end at the temple? Because Jesus is taking in the fact that he came to lay his life down. That temple would, in that singular week, it would be the last time a sacrifice was ever made because Jesus had come to lay down his life to be the final sacrifice for sin. Jesus would take on the sins of the world. That temple would no longer be the way that God dealt with sins. Jesus had come to put aside the temple, to put aside the sacrifice. And when Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple is ripped and the distance between God and man had now been made one in Jesus Christ. That's why there's no coronation. Jesus did not come to be crowned by human hands. He came as king to die for sins. As we close this morning, there's really only two responses, and I see them in the crowds that we saw in the account. And as we enter this last section of Mark, Mark 11 through 16, as, as you continue to attend River of Life, I just want to ask you an honest question. Are you among the crowd who recognized and celebrated Jesus as the Messiah? In Jerusalem that day, there were certainly a few, I don't know how many, who recognized Jesus as king. And they worshipped him. But there's also a crowd who recognized nothing about Jesus. They saw no significance in him riding in a donkey. They saw no significance enough to stop and wonder, why the singing? Why the cloaks? What does this all mean? And they passed him by. I want to ask, if you're honest, are you among that crowd that's not quite sure what to do with Jesus? I don't say that in a judgmental or a condescending way. I just want to ask you, if you're honest with yourself, are you among that crowd that you're not sure what to do with Jesus? Let me make a plea for you to consider as we study this last week of Jesus' life that you consider carefully the claims of Jesus this morning. Jesus clearly claimed to be the Messiah as he entered into Jerusalem. And if he is the Messiah, that means he is God's king. He's the one the whole world has been waiting for. He's the Savior, the one who's been sent to deal with sin. And Psalm 2 tells us that all who take refuge in him are blessed. But it also tells us that those who reject him will perish in the way. My prayer for you is that as we explore this gospel of Mark, that Jesus would make clear to you the truth that he is the Messiah and that you would have the joy of being able to worship him as king. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the preaching and teaching of this word? We believe that your word is words of life. And we ask that you show us what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah for those of us who identify as followers. Show us what it means to live with Jesus as our king who sits on the throne of our lives. 
And for those who sit here today who would identify more with the crowds that said, I'm not sure what to do with Jesus. Maybe they sit here even having rejected Jesus. God, I pray that you would work and begin to reveal yourself in open eyes and open hearts to the truth that Jesus is King. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.